Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Where to start? Where to start? Uh, oh, um, dependency injection. Okay, we'll we'll tackle the big topic yeah. first. Why not? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things I've started doing with these um, topics because I feel like it gets skipped over is asking um, what problem are we solving? So what problem do we solve with dependency injection? I think often people quickly jump to the mechanics of it. Mm -hmm. And so you're supposed to somehow know why you're doing this. And I, I don't understand why, why are we doing, I mean, it feels like some kind of, it's, it's a configuration thing. It's some kind of, it's more dynamic, but you're yeah. arguing that it doesn't have to be. So anyway, <laughs> what, what, what problem are we solving? Uh, we, we oftentimes are, are, um, we need things in our code. So we have, we have something Back that to the needs, basics. needs we something need else. We need things in our code. We need things in our code. Okay. We, we, um, we have something that depends on or needs something else in order to function. Okay. I uh, usually just import something and then use that thing. So. Yes. And you can do that. Mm-hmm. But here's, here's, I think, the core of the why with dependency injection is that what if that thing that you need can change? Not an uncommon situation. Yeah. And what if it can change in a variety of ways? So what if it changes based on the um, way that I'm running something? So this could be that I'm I need something different if I'm doing local development versus I need something different if I'm running a test versus I need something different if I'm running a production. Mm -hmm. So the environment can determine how the thing that you need changes. Okay. But then also configuration can determine the, the, that thing and, and it can change based on configuration that's provided to the application. So there's um, there's a variety of different ways that oh another common way that things can change is based on what else is exists in a system can then determine how it changes as well. So uh, you can almost see it as like a hierarchy where as I am constructing all of the things that everything needs to run, that's making some decisions about what is being provided. And then those decisions impact other decisions for what gets provided and, and uh, provided to something. Okay. So can you give me the most common uh, example? Uh, yeah. Uh, database stuff. Okay. So I've got a DAO for lack of a better word, a database access object, some, some place in my code where I'm going to be able to say, get me all the people from the database. Mm -hmm. And so my DAO, it has a dependency on something that actually knows how to talk to a database. And so it's like a facade between you and the database. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's providing some, some logic in some way, Mm -hmm. um, that, 
some some reason for abstracting out those two different pieces. And so I've got my 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 facade, let's call it, and I've got my actual thing that talks to the database, my data data access object or whatever. And I have intentionally decoupled those. But my my DA, my facade has a dependency on my DAO. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you certainly could just explicitly provide that DAO. You could create your an instance of your DAO and provide that. And that's that's fine. Which if all you were doing was abstracting away from the database would make sense, not generalized. But, that's but right. clearly this must happen in other situations as well. Yeah. And so now um let's say that we that our DAO can change. Mm-hmm. That maybe when we're doing local development, I think this is a horrible practice, but a lot of people do it, is maybe you want to use a H2 in memory database. And then when you're running your tests, you maybe want to use a test container. And then when you're running in production, you're going to use your like actual production DAO or whatever. So m- now my DAO is changing across those environments. Or maybe it's changing based on the configuration that I've provided to the application or whatever. So the the thing that I am providing, the way that I'm getting my dependency is going to change in a variety of ways and, and depending on a variety of factors. So the whole thing of dependency injection is just giving you a facility to provide those dependencies um, provide that 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 uh, construction and injection of dependencies based on this graph that it determines so as your system is kind of waking up and seeing what the environment is and you know doing it so it's 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 going oh i have this i better grab that yep and for because that's the situation here and and I have this other thing so I'll grab so it's it's waking up and making all these choices as it's basically constructing itself yep. okay yep. yeah yeah and so in spring the most common java dependency injection framework uh it is doing this primarily through something that's called a context and so you have a spring context, which is your dependency injection context. And I believe that Juice has has the same model where there's this context that is keeping track of everything. And it's making that whole graph of decisions and injecting things. There's also a life cycle element to this where sometimes when you inject something, you want to inject a new one every time that it's needed. And sometimes you want to have a singleton. And so you inject the same instance every time. And so dependency injection frameworks also have a concept of a life cycle. So the context is what's keeping track of the state of things and the graph and dealing with like circular dependencies. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that that context is managing for you. And presumably the context isn't just like a configuration file or something. It's an active object that's yep. checking out the environment and making decisions for you. The, okay. it is, it is somewhat, um, single direction oriented in that you construct your context and then you ask the context to give you something. And typically in the world of spring, this is all just done with annotations. And so you annotate something as needing a, having a dependency on something. And then out of the seemingly ether, it pulls 
that. But really what that's doing is it's going into the context, pulling the thing out of the context and giving it to you. Hmm. Um, so, so the context is really, I don't know, I want to say running things or, I yes. mean, it's, yeah, this, yeah. It it's is. the point of, I guess the point of truth you go, okay, I, yep. I need to do this thing. I better go ask the context yes. and the context is going to hand You me should never do things out of the context because then you're bypassing the, the, the state of the world mm -hmm. and you're, you're, you're screwing up that state. And so, yes, mm -hmm. whenever you go get an object that uses dependency injection, you need to go to the context to get it. So the context is almost like a factory that... It's just like a stateful factory. Okay. Yep. Huh. Yeah. And so Spring started with using XML to configure the wiring. And so you'd have your XML that was for lo your local dev that defined the, the structure of how things came together and the, the different ways that your, your graph of dependencies. And that change. was just a static configuration file. It was, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and you'd use a different file depending on the situation. You yep. Were so you'd have an okay. XML file for your test when mm -hmm. you run your test, and you'd have an XML file for your prod, um, and then Spring. You can still, I think, use the XML stuff, but nobody really does. Uh, so then Spring added support for doing this with annotations instead. Um, oh, but back to the XML file. So when you would start your Spring application, the context would go read your XML file and determine its graph of dependencies. So the context was a lot simpler because it was just relying on the static XML file. It was just externalizing, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the dependency information to an XML file. And it file. wasn't really dynamic in that case. It wasn't... It was, uh, there was some ability to have dynamic stuff, but yeah, I don't remember exactly how that worked. Which is probably what started pushing it towards dependency injection. I mean, it was dependency injection with the mm -hmm. XML one in the fact mm -hmm. that the other name, I don't know if I've said it yet, is inversion of control. That was the mm -hmm. original name for dependency injection. And I'm sure that Martin Fowler coined that one like he coins everything. Um, but uh, so inversion of control was was in some ways a better representation of what's happening in that it used to be that you would instantiate an object and pass an instance explicitly to the thing that needed it. And instead, the inversion of control inverted that model and said, no, there's going to be this context that is going to give you what you need, the dependencies you need, instead of you explicitly passing them. Uh, I can see. Yeah, I feel like when I came across that term initially, I found it a little confusing and I still do because it doesn't feel inverted. It just feels um, uh, put, you know, it's over here now instead of me mm. making that decision. So, so yeah, so true. I think I was always looking it for what's the inversion. Yeah, it's true. It wasn't quite an inversion. It was more just a um, shift, shift, uh, shift left of mm -hmm. the it's a shift left control not a inversion control mm -hmm. yeah okay so so we so most of the dependency injection stuff in the last like 10 years on the jvm used annotations as the way to describe the wiring mm -hmm. and the annotation simply says i need a thing but always go to the context to get this thing. And here's, here's the name of the thing, but get it from the context. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. 
And so you would you would have some way to create the the context and and your your first your kind of entry point into your application needs to be something that you get out of the context because you need to have that like first thing like you create a context but then the the your the the thing that you interact with your endpoint you interact with your your server that you're starting whatever needs to come out of that context mm-hmm. because then everything else follows underneath that where everything else that it every dependency and the whole graph of dependencies is then using the context to to get its instance. And the context, I assume, is always a singleton. Or would you ever have you can, multiple no, contexts? You, you can create multiple. Like this is something most people don't have to actually do because it's all kind of hidden from you and abstracted in a way that that you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. But you can create as many contexts as you want, and you can provide different configuration to the context uh, creator context there's you know some way to create an actual context and so you can you can give it information about that then it will determine the graph that it Mm. that it uh creates from your configuration most of the time you don't have to do that most of the time you just say run my application and underneath the covers it's creating the context and doing all that for you but Mm. um so so most most java based library dependency injection frameworks used annotations which then uses reflection oh, and, and wait remind me you do like <laughs> reflection oh it's cuz it makes so everything horrible. so flexible it's so horrible um so we when they when they switched to annotations they had to have some way to at runtime be able to to modify things mm-hmm. and modify basically arbitrary things and so yeah Sounds ref- like reflection reflection was <laughs> was the way and go to um and now it's causing a whole lot of problems with ahead of time compilation and GraalVM native image and so there's this whole effort right now to like make reflection easier in ahead of time compiled scenarios when i'm like can we just not use reflection for this thing? Um, but anyways, that's a separate topic. It's funny how something that seems like the obvious path and it works for a while. And then we run into these, we begin running into more and more edge cases. And then we have to go back and go, oh, that thing that seemed like a good idea, it actually isn't. And But we could only figure it out by building systems that were big enough to demonstrate that. Yeah. But in the small, I mean, it's it's kind of like exceptions. Yeah. In the small, they seem like the smart thing to do. But then as the systems get bigger and bigger, we begin to discover the problems. But they're not obvious. They're subtle. Yeah. And to actually track it back to oh it's because we're using exceptions in this way right that's what the problem is so we have to shift our fundamental understanding we have a whole bunch of people at that point who have gotten on board with that fundamental understanding and then you come along and go ah we shouldn't use reflection for dependency injection and people go it's been works for me what's your problem yeah yeah i mean there's two ways you can go with it one you can try to build a layer on top of the thing to make it better or you can you well, that's can the additive just re- approach, right? that's right that's the additive approach uh-huh. or you can say 
maybe we sh- maybe the foundation that we've built on is not the right foundation for this. Um, I had a tweet about this uh, exact topic um, where I said, this was just like yesterday, where I said, better DX isn't just adding tooling developer to make... experience. Yes, yeah, thank you. So better developer experience isn't just adding tooling to make something easier. Often better developer experience is taking something away so it's no longer needed. And then someone followed up with a much better way to say this, but um, was, uh, let's see, who is this person's? Uh, Benjamin Black says uh, some rules for engineering and operations. And the first one is the best solution to a problem is to not have it. (laughs) And just so nails that concept of, you know, sure, we can make reflection work and we can do all these like gymnastics to make it work in all the places that were that it causes issues ahead of time compilation being one startup performance being another we can do all these gymnastics to continue to try to make reflection work or we could just say let's not use reflection and get rid of a whole set of problems um so the spring folks they're 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 using reflection they're um and i use spring and and you know i certainly make trade-offs with my ideals well and it works until it doesn't that's right exactly (laughs) it works until it doesn't um but so micronaut took a different approach with this which is they they wanted to have the programming model of annotation based dependency injection uh to primarily i think because it is familiar to a lot of developers but they didn't want to use annotations and so they Mm -hmm. actually used the kotlin annotation processor capped to to at compile time process their annotations and so um, micronaut um, in some ways can work a lot better with ahead of time compilation and doesn't have the startup overhead of reflection and you know all oh, which you things. didn't mention so so when you're doing dependency injection there must be some amount of startup overhead is it significant it can be, okay. uh, and it depends on how many classes you have, because mm-hmm. part of doing doing reflection and figuring out that graph at startup time is going and looking at every class in the system and looking at the annotations that are on all those classes. And so there's this overhead to scanning the class path. So larger the class path, the more But how scanning. often do you start up a system? <laughs> uh, so yeah, certainly it depends on your use case. Mm-hmm. If you're building a command line, you tool, you probably don't want to wait for that whole scan to happen. If instead you are building a server that you're going to start once and it's going to run for five years, then yeah, you're, who Who cares? cares? (laughs) But if if you're serverless, serverless, exactly, then uh... you do care. And so, um, so that's where Micronaut has, has, uh, has fit generally better with, um, GraalVM native image, uh, has fit better with serverless. Some of that stuff is because they're not doing the stuff at, startup time and in that case startup time really is important yeah because yeah every time you hit a serverless thing it has to start cold start system that's right yeah Yeah. you get cold starts um so 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 this is all kind of traditional model of how we wire together applications and there is some nice things about it if you're working on a large team let's say you've got a thousand developers are working on a code base it is pretty nice to just decouple all these things and everyone is creating their beans and putting them there. And then anytime you need a bean, you just say, all right, 
inject me that bean. So you actually go to the context to get a bean. Uh, yeah, that's the dependency injection. And a bean is like the uh, terminology of spring, spring beans and, and all that. And so a bean is something that can be injected. And so so if you're working on this large project where every every person, all of your thousand developers are just creating beans, then that makes it so anyone can, can say summon from the ether, which is really just the context, but mm -hmm. that's abstracted from you say, I need a, I need a foo bean. And, and, and we're talking just like data classes here. And in other the beans. Words, yeah. I mean, any, any kind of bean, including just a data transfer object or whatever, any, I'd, I'd go to the context to get that. Uh, Anytime you are constructing something that has dependencies is when you would make it a uh, bean. Okay. If if it doesn't have dependencies, then just construct it with a constructor. Don't go to the context. Yeah. yeah you don't okay. need, you don't need right. the overhead of it. Just double check. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question is like, when should something be a bean or not? And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's if it has dependencies or it needs to be injected, but the only reason you would need to inject it is if it has dependencies. So mm -hmm. um, it's a little confusing because we have Java beans yeah, and you're not talking about just plain old Java no. beans. You're talking yeah, about um, injectable things, injectable things. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So, so, there is a nice thing about this, like just summon any bean from the ether and in a very large team working on a shared code base, it's pretty nice to just not have to think about where that thing comes from, how it's configured, how it's provided, any of that. You just say, give one to me and, and yeah, you get one. Factor, it's almost too bad they didn't call it a factory. Yeah. Because that I find that the factory model is is a pretty useful one. It's yeah. one of the few design patterns that like you can see universally yeah. used. Yeah. Yeah. Um so there there is a different way that you can go with dependency mm -hmm. injection. Okay. Uh and this is other than the micronaut way, or are you talking? Yeah, about other than the micronaut way. Okay. So, so most of the dependency injection stuff in Java basically looks the same. It's annotation based. Uh, may or may not use reflection to do that, but mm -hmm. but annotation based programming. Um, and I the the programming model is it's not that bad, like with the annotations until like you said until it's until it is bad and then then it becomes a whole lot of then fun. Then you hit a wall. Yeah, like so many of our programming systems it's like yeah it works great it works great oh shoot it doesn't work great yeah and the only thing we can do is change at a fundamental level yeah yeah which is expensive yes yeah and so there, the, on the functional programming side of things it, it's interesting because um for a long time people were trying to kind of recreate the 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 programming models the dependency injection programming models for functional programming. And there was a bunch of attempts at this. Dick Wall, our friend, created one. And, yes, I remember um, that. Play Framework just used uh, like the juice mm -hmm. uh, dependency injection stuff. And so there was, there's been all these attempts to like do dependency injection in the world of, of functional programming. And I think they've all failed because it, it didn't give you the benefits of functional programming. Yeah. The one of the benefits of functional programming is pure functions. 
I for every given input there it will always return the same thing. But every time you go to the context, you're getting an object. That's right. You okay. with with dependency injection, you're inherently you inherently cannot have pure functions. Mm-hmm. It it is impossible because you've got some external thing with that is stateful and giving you potentially something different every time. But what you get from the context is something that has both state and behavior, right? Yeah. I mean, isn't that necessary? So, which is basically the, the meaning of an object. It has yeah. state and it has behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what's your so, solution here? So the, the solution, which, There's been, again, a number of attempts at doing this in a more functional way. But the problem is the same. And the problem that's trying to solve is the same thing we started with, which is things can change. Mm -hmm. And I need to have a way to provide different things to things that have dependencies. And so, but can we do that in a way that is pure functional? And so... Mostly when I've done this, I've used Zio, Scala Zio, as the way to handle this. And the way that they do it is they say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna have a, a core of pure functions. And so that means that you know we've got referential transparency, um, where given an input, we're always gonna get the same. You can uh, I think the actual definition is something like you can substitute uh, a given a, a function an input and calculating its output, you can substitute that for the value. So that should always be substitutable. The the computation of an input, a function with an input should be substitutable with its value at any time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, so what we're going to do is we're going to start with a core of things that are pure functions. And then at the end points of our application, anytime we uh, touch the outside world, we're going to have this thin layer that that says, all right, here's the place where we're going to weave together the actual pieces that our system needs. But inside of that, it's all pure functions. It is, there's nothing that actually computes state. Uh, there's nothing that actually talks to the outside world. And but at some point we need to like materialize this into something that can talk to the real world and mutate state. And so, so we're going to have this just thin layer over our pure functions that provides that, and it does it at our endpoints. So an endpoint is I'm going to start a server. I'm going to run a test. I'm going to um, start a command line, run a command line, whatever that that may be. Our, those are our entry points. And it and when we have an entry point that touches the external world is when we're going to weave together all of the dependencies that are needed and pass them to that thing so that then something can take our pure model and run our pure model with all of the dependencies that are actually needed. And so this is called an effect system, uh, functional effects, and uh, Zio is, is one option for how to do this. It's a very different programming model and way to think about the world. And it, it, it adds some complications. So I'll give you one, one just simple complication that this adds, and then, and then I'll stop ranting. But so think about a random number generator, a random number generator can by definition, not be a pure function because it's random. And so it is for a given input, it's giving you a different output. Every time it is talking to some external system, 
and that external system is indeterminate by definition. And so a random number generator cannot be a pure function. It cannot live in that nice pure function bubble. You're depend, you, you can have a dependency on something that generates random numbers, but you can't actually generate a random number in that bubble of pure functions. And so if you had a program that needs a random number generator, then at your endpoint, where you're going to construct a program is where you would say, okay, here is the thing that's actually going to generate random numbers. And you would then pass that into your functions and your function would then be able to run with the thing that's actually going to talk to the outside world. Did any of that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. No. And it reminded me of Elm, one of the um, trouble points that I had mentally with Elm, which is like, okay, we we have a data structure which describes our system and that's constant and then we're getting ready to change the system and the data structure now we're going to generate a new i think identical one of those i mean not identical in terms of its values we we have this moment where we yeah. change the values and now we have a new data structure which we plug into this thing which has to be a variable because it's, it's changing from one data structure one instance of that data structure to another but i guess it's okay cuz we've isolated it and it's behind some you know a curtain so that so there's a little bit of magic. I think it happens. can be immutable in the case of Elm. I think you can create a copy of your model, they call yes. it, and then your model will will be be update. You'll update your model with the new value, and then you yes. just return that. Yes. And the the thing that is running essentially the Elm effect system, mm -hmm. or I think they call it a runtime in effect systems. The runtime is what is now saying, "Oh, I have a new model." Exactly. Exactly. But there is that moment and, and underneath the covers, there's a variable that points to the model that switches from the old model to the new model. Now, Elm is managing that for you. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so in the runtime, there is, there is mutation. There, there is, there is mutation. I mean, they've narrowed it down to what is the model yeah. and I'll switch from the old one to the new one. And we'll, we'll do it at this, you know, behind the covers at this, uh, point where we decide okay now we're updating the model yeah but it still bugged me a little yeah because it's not uh, you know you ha well i guess that's what you're talking about with the effects it's like at some point you're gonna have things that are gonna change you yeah. know that are I mean, not i mean we we cram them into a little box. If you can't ever do mutation or talk to the outside world, then you have a worthless program. <laughs> right. You have, I mean, it's kind of like pure math or whatever. Right. It's, it's like, yeah, we've, Not we've proved these things in pure math, but if it, if we can at some point, at some uh, point you have to talk to the, outside have to world. talk to the world, which I think is important to say when we're talking about functional yep. programming. So in the case of Elm, the, the outside world, part of the outside world is your DOM. Mm -hmm. the browser page and the right. dom is mutable right and so yes at some point your your elm program that you've written all immutably and all that at some point ultimately it has to mutate the dom mm -hmm. <laughs> no getting mm -hmm. around that but it's doing you know the system is doing the mutation for That's you right. and you're and and i i don't know i think for my mental model I needed to know that like sooner than, or, or I think I felt like they tried to hide it. They tried mm. to go, Oh no, everything is immutable. Yeah, yeah. You're going, is it though? You know, and, <laughs> right. and without, 
without really that explanation of, oh yeah, mutation happens, but we're controlling the heck out of it. Yeah. And that I think is necessary for a new programmer to, to kind of have. To, to I think really we, we in programming in the typical kind of mutable imperative model, mm-hmm. we don't really think about things as being, there being a difference between um, the code that I write and the runtime that's actually then, then doing something with that. Whereas in Elm and in Zio and other effect systems, there is a very distinct separation between here's the description of my thing. And then here's the runtime that actually takes that description and actually applies it to the real world. And so it's, it's a different mental model than what we're used to. Yeah. And I think maybe we just haven't been doing it long enough to be able to understand that it's necessary to explain that. And well, and also now the intent is different. It's like, yeah, we know things mutate, but what we're trying to do is, is isolate ourselves as much as possible from that mutation so that our code doesn't inherently have flaws in it. Yeah. And to be able to say that, I feel like makes more sense yeah. to people because the first thing that they're going to say is, hey, the world changes and our right. our model well it's like what you said in your tweet it's like the model needs to or did we talk about that already uh, your, your tweet about trying to fit the model to the to the world or to our world so that, I, no i don't think we talked we, about yeah that. okay okay yeah. and uh, so Which that? um, um th- this oh this one the yeah. okay so one of the most important Programming concepts I've learned in the past decade is how to better make my types reflect reality. Was it that one? Yes, that's the one. And and we were talking about, okay, so how that feels different than just saying, all right, we should do domain-driven design. <laughs> because with Eric's book, Eric Evans' book, he talks a lot about like literal real world stuff, the shipping example and the pieces in the shipping example, which is a nice entry to that idea. But what you're also talking about is on the, I guess I'll call it the internal model of our programming. Like I call a function and the function may not return a value for some reason. And it's too easy to just say, let's pretend we're on the happy path and it does return a value every time. And ah, uh, yeah, problems might occur, but then we'll get an exception <laughs> or whatever. It's, it's, we, let's not worry about that. Yeah. And all the trouble that that gets you into. Yeah. And so what we want is, no, we, we need an object that comes back that has potentially the value. And then if the value isn't there, something else tells me what's gone wrong, a default value, That's right. yeah. uh, something. Yeah. That, yeah. And, you, and I think you were talking about um, how, uh, for example, a way not to do this, you, or you are arguing against, say, just returning a tuple. Right. Yeah. yeah so the example that, that I used in this tweet was, if something can return either an error or a value, don't return a tuple. Because the tuple doesn't reflect the the actual the actual possible uh, way that this thing can be a mm-hmm. tuple is something that can be inhabited by well a, a two um, 
what multiple a, a two value tuple can have two values well, has, it has two values it does by it definition does. it has two values yes and they're two dis i mean they don't have to have any relationship with each other yeah, yeah. um but in the case of something that can that can only return either an error or a value, a tuple is the wrong way to model that because mm -hmm. uh, you should have uh, back to ADTs, algebraic data types, which we've talked about a number of times. A sum type is the way to model something that can be either an A or a B or a C or you know how many ever possible things you want. So, but a tuple is a product type, and so. Uh, it just is by product it, type. You mean it has all of these things together. That's right. Yeah. Whereas a, what was the sum type? A sum type has only one of the possible things. That's right. Okay. Yeah. It's, yeah. Some types are like enums and product types are like, and sum is S U M. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but from a kind of pragmatic standpoint, a tuple can work. I mean, that's how Go does it. Yeah. It's a it's like, okay, you get a tuple back and you can't just take the tuple and pass it to whatever's looking for it. You have to reach in and grab the result. And so it's kind of a maybe a compromise. Uh I would say the way that Go does it is just just mathematically flawed mm -hmm. and logically flawed because it's not the right data model. The right data model is if if something can return either an error or a value, it's a sum type, not a product. But mm -hmm. Go makes it look like a product, but you're right that you don't really use it like a product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like they were saying, well, we can do this. Comp I mean, it's kind of like using null to represent uh, well, something else happened than the <laughs> result. And it's like, well, that happens. That's just, uh, that's an implementation detail. You know, the concept is uh, you didn't get what you were hoping for. Yeah. And we'll represent that by using null. Yeah. And here the concept is, well, there's, it, we'll, we'll compromise and use this tuple rather than inventing a new type that I don't know that it, really helped though that much you know i think they could have because because when you get a tuple you have to write some code to unpack it before you call your next function yeah and um you have to do that in go you, yeah right exactly you, that's what i mean see all you over go you see if error not equal no right. <laughs> exactly and if they had maybe gone the extra step and said all right let's have every function return some kind of object and it might've been more, well, probably would have been more efficient, wouldn't it? If I don't it, know. If it was a sum type rather than a yeah, tuple. I mean, and I feel like yeah. they're worried about efficiency because they use tabs instead of I spaces. Think what, I think a, a possible valid concern with this is that there, there is, it is a slippery slope and you can see the slippery slope with Kotlin. Uh, is that you, as soon as you say, all right, let's do a sum type for this, then, well, you probably want that sum type to, to be like an actual sum type with, um, with like a sealed, sealed class where you have, you know, uh, it can only be these, these things. So it's sealed. Uh, then you probably 
also want it to be a monad because you can chain it and chain these monads uh, across functions. And like, I can totally see. And then you have to teach people what flat map does for for every function that they call. Yeah. And then your next slip down the slope is that, okay, now that we're using monads for these things, we probably need an effect system to like handle our, our, monads that touch the outside world and so eventually you just get to zeo and which i love and and you know think is the solution but to all there's this a learning, but there I, is it's not a curve it's a step function yeah it's like suddenly you have to know all this stuff in order and based on what kotlin was trying to do which was make a gentle transition better than scala from java to something that will work easily with Java. Yeah. That I, I understand their choice, but it does seem like at some point we need to, you know, rethink this because there's still enough flaws and limitations to that model yeah. that, that we're going to, we're going to have problems with it. But I don't know as a, I mean, that's what C did. It said we want to be able to, effortlessly bring people from C so they can just program C and then they can start slowly adding these features as they go. And that, you know, bringing in the human psychology Mm. is remarkably behavioral economics. Yes, yes, exactly. The (laughs) behavioral economics aspect of um, programming languages and just pretending, well, we should just go for the, we should go for perfection. (laughs) Well, then you've got Haskell, but hardly anybody uses that. Yeah. So, and I think it's because of that mental model step function that you have to go through. And so maybe we need to. So on the flip side of this, what, Mm -hmm. what happens with dependency injection and with, um, uh, Jetpack Compose, which is the UI programming model for the new one for Android. And have you been using that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you like it? Uh, it's it's fine, but it's not what I want it to be. That's what Shakespeare would call <laughs> damning with faint praise. <laughs> it's fine. There are there are there are nice things about it, but uh-huh. it's one of those things where to me, I'm like, okay, yes, monads are hard to learn. But monads would have been so much better of a model for this thing, because what happens with Jetpack Compose is that you need to mutate state. And we're not doing it with monads and we're not doing it with pure functions and we're not doing it with an effect system. Instead, you've got this magical, I I think somewhere I call it like a magical lurking dragon of state like management that's happening somewhere else and happening in some way you can't comprehend. And so when things don't work as expected, Mm. all of a sudden you're like taking your sword into the cave, looking for this dragon. That's probably just going to eat you and spit (laughs) you out after frying you with its fire breathing mouth. And so, so yes, it's fine until it's not fine. Mm -hmm. And when it's not fine, you don't have a good model that you can drop down to. So, there is a trade-off there. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is easier to initially learn, but once you once you need to go looking for that dragon, gosh, it's not going to be fun. And so mm-hmm. I I really wonder. And Elm was actually, I think, the first major uh, system that said, "Okay, yes, we know this is going to be. There is going to be a 
a higher learning curve to doing this. But we think that the benefits of helping people through that step function learning curve to understand a better way to do things is going to be worth it in the long run. And I guess if you look at Elm's current adoption, maybe this is telling me that you know, that I'm wrong and that, that it's not worth it, or maybe it wasn't worth it or for Elm, we or they didn't yet. invest enough resources, or yeah, maybe we as a programming community weren't ready for it. Or Yeah. I mean, when you think about the behavioral economics approach to things, which is kind of not, not for people who don't, aren't familiar with the term, it's there's economics where my model is they go, wouldn't it be cool if we could write equations that predicted the world? Let's assume we can and go from there. And then behavioral economics came along and said, well, let's watch what people actually do and build our model on that. Yeah. And it's harder, yeah. but it actually is a way better model that's more predictive. So if, if you look at um, you know languages and our systems this way, uh, then you have to say, yeah, everybody understands basically what an object is now. We can argue about whether that's a great thing or not. But when C++ was coming along, nobody knew what an object was or polymorphism yeah. or why you would do, you know, why is this helpful? Uh, and so everybody had to kind of, or not everybody, you know, some significant portion of the programming community had to get to a certain point of understanding of these concepts before we could introduce yep. newer concepts. And we, and so, you know, Elm is ahead of the curve, but, um, you know, C++ had to push the boundaries yeah. and that's probably what Elm is doing yeah. for people. And so, yeah, maybe it doesn't have this massive uh, adoption right now, but the people who do adopt it are, beginning to yeah. learn why these things are valuable. Maybe we're starting to see signs that, that the general developer community is becoming um, ready for some of these concepts. Mm -hmm. I, I just saw a tweet where somebody said that Scala Zio is like the first time in 10 years when they've enjoyed programming or something. Mm. And I, I see with Scala Zio, a lot of developers are looking at it and be like, okay, this is, this, this is something that I can learn and can use and can enjoy programming with and can see the benefits of mm -hmm. whereas haskell i think was you know it certainly helped push things forward but most developers and myself included like haskell is too far like i, mm -hmm. I can't i can't go that far i've what I'm not ready for that. like like when i first saw haskell just the syntax of how you define a function was um beyond my comprehension. Now, having seen parts of that syntax, you know, go into places like Scala and Kotlin, and you begin to, you go, oh yeah, this actually is a way better way of doing it, but it's just that little piece. And then I can go back to Haskell and I can go, oh yeah, I can read this now. And then there's some things that I learned from Elm that I can now look at Haskell and go, oh yeah, I can see why they're doing that. But having that dropped on you all at once, okay, everything's different. Yeah. And it's like, oh, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And you can't, you, you know, we have to allow for incremental understanding. And I think part of what we're looking at, the motivation behind it is we're making bigger and bigger systems. And when you have something like JavaScript, which is, this huge free-for-all 
and and the system gets bigger and then people go oh i can't manage the system anymore yeah. something's gone wrong and then they're able to go back and say oh i can see why these alternatives are coming up yeah i'm glad you brought up like refactoring and kind of evolvability of a code base because that is one of the things where you don't see the impact of of a model like a dynamic type system or a um, or using an effect, not using an effect system or whatever. You don't see a lot of these these impacts until you need to like evolve the code base, refactor it, add some feature, whatever. And when it gets big, too. and when it gets big, that size also mm -hmm. is is. A, a huge which is in this. kind of inevitable i mean you yeah. know we go oh i can do this now now I'll add more and more stuff and then you begin to hit the boundaries right. of what your your system yeah can, the complexity yeah. overhead makes it slows you down progressively whereas in the small it doesn't seem like it's a big deal right yeah and and so like python could be great for small stuff and you know i'm certainly people are using python for large oh, stuff they too. make huge systems but python. um I, I, on the large code bases that I work on, mm -hmm. I am so freaking thankful that the compiler tells me, yes, your refactor works or has some level of workiness to it. Well, I think this is, you know, the reason that optional static typing moved, got its way into Python, because when we started dealing with bigger systems, that became... I, I heard the story. I need to look it up to see how valid it is. But I heard that the Microsoft team that was working on VS Code, mm -hmm. they initially started with JavaScript, you know, because they're for a variety I of reasons. I thought it was still in Oh, it's in TypeScript now. So they, when, mm -hmm. once the code base got to, I don't know what the number was, 400,000 lines of code or mm -hmm. whatever, they couldn't move forward anymore. Like, mm -hmm. they, like, you just could not validate that the program was correct and so it got really hard to add new things to vs code their their velocity significantly slowed down as their javascript code base got large yeah. and so they went off and said we're going to go create typed javascript which became typescript so you think vs code is the is the motivating factor that's for the story that i have heard is that oh. the code base of vs code that started in javascript mm -hmm. got too large and the velocity got too slow and so they went and created typescript so that they could move vs code for forward yeah well and and i could see the it's a plausible story right oh <laughs> totally i mean because yeah you, you it isn't just a website which yeah, might fail now and then but yeah whatever and and i could totally see, i mean because uh, with uh, Python, people kept creating larger and larger projects, and the lack of typing becomes a problem. Yeah. And I realize in hindsight that because I, for a long time, was arguing for uh, you know the way that Python worked and the problems with static type checking, and I realized that. A lot of the problems that I had with it was the visual noise mm. of static yeah. typing. But when you look at it just from the benefits standpoint, yeah. you go, okay, well, what if it wasn't awful to um, write and read this stuff? And you just, and it's like, well, you can't argue against the benefits. Right. And, and Scott it's Myers just... once told me, he goes, there's two benefits for static type checking. One is generating more efficient code. Well, that's hard to argue against that. And the second is tooling. So mm. your tools can like 
tell tell you things yeah. about it. And it's like both of those are super good things. Yeah, but but there's a trade off. Then you have to satisfy the compiler. You have to you uh, you know you can't just do things whatever you know whatever you, want. you whatever you want. Which in most of the times in Python you're not, but you don't have that extra validation. encumbrance or yeah. validation of the of the type checking yeah. and yeah and so once you see it that way you go oh yeah it's it's got benefits and my problem was well java mostly yeah you know it's like having to repeat yourself and create this really hard thing to look at yeah and they've been making progress but it's still you know i guess we have vars now but yeah. who knows what the limitations of those are yeah, so so to me, immutability, pure functions, effect systems, a lot of the benefit is exactly what we're talking about with type systems is that when I'm writing my code, when I'm just like, you know, just getting started on a new project, they may not have a lot of value initially and may actually be kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. But once the code base gets large and or I haven't touched it in a long time, I need to go do a refactor, I need to go add some new feature. I am so thankful that I, that I started with, with those things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it, I think I would throw effect systems into the same boat as type systems and being like, yeah, it may be painful. It may, I may not see the benefits of it right away, but down the road, I'm going to be so thankful that I, because you built things can in that say way. it only changes it. The, the, all the variance happens here, right? right. In this exactly. place. So I can, whereas if you don't know that you go, gee, I wonder where it's happening. I guess I'll have to go look for it. Yeah. 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 So it's a benefit, but, and in 10 years, maybe that high percentage of people will be able to say, yeah, oh, it's totally, I get it. Yeah. I just had a, a project that I did a huge refactor on totally like changed the architecture of the application. It was a major overhaul and it only took me like a day to like add this new feature, do this major overhaul and the compiler validated. Yes. Uh, you, you know, your, your changes have compiled and I was in production from the point that I got the compiler working to when I got the thing that change in production was like 10 minutes because compiler gave me a thumbs up. I, Let's mm -hmm. deploy it and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And it presumably, just, your test cases also gave you. I, in this code base, I have very, very. I have got like two tests. Um, mm -hmm. The 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 compiler does most of my validation you rely for me on the compiler. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Which yeah, is, uh, and yeah, it was such a nice experience. And this was in Scala. I this is in Scala. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but. Certainly things were harder because of the way that I had built mm -hmm. the program. I wasn't mm -hmm. using reflection-based dependency injection. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, everything was statically injected basically. And so, um, yeah, uh, but I was so thankful that the refactor was, was easy and worked without a lot of pain. Which is not something you see up front. It, you see it when you have to change things. Yeah. And isn't that one of the, I feel like, you know, when extreme programming and uh, agile and stuff came out, they were arguing that either our assumptions about where costs happen 
was wrong or they should be wrong or something huh. like that. You know, they were saying, well, we assume that as the system gets bigger and bigger, if you need to make a change, it, it, you know, th further down the line you are, the more expensive it is. Yeah. But, yeah. And I can't remember if they were saying it isn't actually that way or it shouldn't be that way. Hmm. Cause it does seem like it is, you yeah. know, the more, the worse design your system has, the, more expensive it is to, to make changes. And yeah. I, I think, I think maybe their thing was our goal is to, is to have that kind of flatten out so that if you want to make a change further down the system, mm. it's not nearly. Instead of having an exponential curve. Yes, exactly. More linear or something. Right. It's nice. yeah. It's something so that, and, and if you think about it, well, it's almost like what Martin's doing with Scala three right now, he's going, Oh, I have this great idea. And he's not, saying, oh, but we're so far down the line, the complexity that's going to cause is is prohibitive. So I can't do it. Yeah. And when you're building a system, you want to be able to take that great idea. I mean, this is when when I put books together, I want, the, you know, if, if I get an idea 10 days before production, I want to be able to say, oh, that's essential. We got to be able to put that in and not have it be a prohibitive yep. thing. Yep. That's yeah. Right. And you've put together infrastructure that that enables that. It's going to test everything. Yeah. And that's why the idea of having the tiny chapters is there is because, oh, I can just insert a tiny chapter at the right place or, oh no, this needs to Rearrange, move around yeah. and it doesn't, it, yeah. it doesn't have that cost. Instead of a foundation that makes refactorability low cost. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so, cause it just seems like that happens. Like the, the more I understand something, the more likely I am to get that insight and it really needs to go in there. You can't just go, ah, it's too late. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, to wrap up on the making your types reflect reality, mm -hmm. uh, what, what spurred that idea was a video that I watched from, uh, the Scala Zio conference, um, where, uh, somebody was presenting on, um, I think his name is George or Jorge, uh, um, presenting on Scala Zio prelude refinement types. Mm -hmm. So it's a new feature in a library called Zio prelude that adds support for refinement types, which are a way to essentially easily have your types reflect reality. Uh, for for some some type of types, uh, but do it without runtime overhead because a lot of times to do this well you have to like wrap things into new classes, which is more allocations, blah blah blah. So uh, so the refinement types you know, that are coming in Zio Prelude look really nice for doing this. Right, and what you were showing me indicated that if something could be checked by the compiler, it would be, and if it wasn't possible, then it would add some kind of something in the constructor to, to test the type when it was being created. Yep. Yeah. And this specifically, there's, um, can you apply constraints on your type? Like, mm -hmm. let's say you have a name and your name shouldn't be empty. Uh, so like then, preconditions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so it gives you a nice programming model for, for dealing with those preconditions but there's times when you have a value at compile time, which should be able to be checked at compile time mm -hmm. and, and, 
Prelude does that. But then if you have a value at run only at runtime, say you something you're pulling or whatever, yeah, right. then it still will check that constraint, but will then give you back a type that is an either, uh, a sum type that says either, yes, this is the value of this thing because it passed the constraints or an error. It's kind of mind boggling because you're saying if it can check it at compile time, it doesn't give you an either because, right. I mean, which logically makes sense. Yeah. But when you think about, oh, how is it doing that? When if it's if it has to check it at runtime, it does give you an either. Yeah. It's like, huh. Yeah. Huh. That's uh, pretty amazing. That Scala is, macros. <laughs> yeah. Which, yeah. Well, ma- I, I remember hearing people say, oh, Lisp macros, that's like a whole different world. And my... You know, my exposure to macros was like C and C++ macros, which were simply uh, text replacement, you know, not mm. nothing very terribly sophisticated. And then yeah. you go, well, why is this so complicated? Because the term shouldn't have even been used <laughs> yeah. the, in the same way. Yeah. And so, yeah, when you see, well, and didn't, um, didn't Dick Wall use uh, Scala macros for his dependency injection system? I think I he used he a compiler plugin. Oh, you're right. There's a compiler plugin. For some reason, people in the Scala community don't don't typically use compiler plugins well, anymore. Well, I think compiler they, plugins it was were the, a precursor to yeah, macros. Probably. Yeah, because so. I feel like he said at some point that, oh, now Maybe you, we did switch to a you macro would do or, a macro or he switched yeah. to macros or whatever. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so dependency injection, uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, but the the alternative that I do recommend, effect systems, there is learning curve too. So, and we haven't really seen effect systems, at least that I've seen, like in the world of Java. They do exist in Kotlin. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Arrow, the functional mm-hmm. programming library in Kotlin, actually has some effect system stuff in it, which is pretty nice. And um, is there some limitation in Java that prevents an effect system? I don't, I don't, maybe the programming model just, just would be, make it too complicated. Make it too, yeah. Make it too awkward. Um, but it seems like people that are interested in that way of doing things are, are moving to a beyond more Java. appropriate language. Yeah. yeah. I see. Yeah. Hmm. Well, that was fun. Yeah. I, I learned some things. <laughs> Me too. It's it's kind of an interesting, uh, well, especially stuff where you know a whole bunch and I know nothing. I get to um, pretend to be a proxy for the audience so I can hide my own ignorance about. I'm just asking this question for the audience. It's like, like I'm I understand all this stuff, but I actually don't. asking for a friend. Uh, yes, exactly. I'm asking for a friend because nope, don't don't understand this. So I get to ask all the most basic questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's fun. It is. Thank you. Thank you.